Nicholas Miller was murdered on January 14th, 1995, and this is his Aunt Michelle and Aunt Patty's story. Please be aware that although all of our episodes are tragic, this episode is about the murder of a child and may be particularly distressing to some listeners. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. Wayland is a town in New York City in the United States. It is a small town mostly made up of families with children. Stony Brook State Park is called a hidden gem and is on the outskirts of Wayland. There is so much fun for families to have in this park. From enjoying a swim in the nature pool, cooling off after you have finished your hike up to the beautiful waterfall, picnicking, walking, or just relaxing with a good book. You can find people of all ages gathering here for anything from a weekend barbecue to a weekend camping trip. Wolschlegel's Naples Maple Farm is another must visit. This maple farm is nestled at the top of the Naples Hills, just a short drive from Wayland, and is family owned and operated. You will be happily greeted by this family whom, if you miss them when you arrive, will be found out in the sugar bush tending their trees and continually getting ready for the next season's harvest of delectable syrup. Tours are offered and their family loves to teach their welcome guests about their passion. Nicholas lived in Wayland with his mother, but was taken too soon to have enjoyed life in this suburban town with a rural mixed town feel. Hello. Hi, it's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. So I have both Michelle and Patty on the line. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Hi, how are you? I'm, I'm well, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Tell me a little bit about your wee little nephew and what he was like as a baby. He was like any normal little toddler, full of energy, full of life. We are a very big family, very close-knit. We spent a lot of time together. And and you know, the funny thing is, is nobody really ever asked us that. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and, And why do you think that is? I think a lot of it is, is people just want to know the details of what had happened and not know more of Nicholas. And even though he was two years old, he was still full of life. His life was taken very, you know, short, and he's frozen in time at the age of two. My last memory of him was the night he died. It was uh, during the afternoon when he was sick, after his father had brought him home to my sister, And at one point, she had called me because of his fever, and he had gotten on the phone and was talking to Aunt Michelle, 
and he said, I eat cheese, Aunt Shell. I love cheese, Aunt Shell. I feel better, Aunt Shell. I love you, Aunt Shell. And, and that was the last conversation. You must be very happy to have that memory. Yes, I am. I really am. And did he enjoy playing with any particular toy, or was there something that he really, really was passionate about already? He had a teddy bear. It was Sleepy Sherman, and then there was Clowny. Tell me about them. Who made Clowny? Mom, our mother bought Baby Sherman. It was a teddy bear in pajamas, and he had the pajama hat on. He bought, Mom bought one for him, bought one for my daughter, Amber, bought one for my nephew, Jacob. They're the only three that had that toy. And he loved that toy. He took that that stuffed animal and his little stuffed clowny with him everywhere. He's buried with them. Oh, so they were his special, special little toys. Yes. Nick was a mama's boy. She was very protective. Yes. yes. She was mama's boy bad. Yep. He was a big mama's boy. She was very protective of him. Even after um, her and her ex-husband separated and got the divorce. We're a very um, close family, and we celebrated birthdays and holidays. We were always together. Sunday dinners. Sunday dinners. Just, we were constantly together. He was very close to our parents. He was very close to his cousins, his aunts. They would come to my house probably every other day. Well, Nicholas and Amber and Casey were the same age for Five months? Yes. And they're all, all the cousins, all our children are close in age age too. (laughs) So when there's a family get together, it's quite the, quite the uh, large amount of people then. Oh yeah. Back then there was, and even now just to plan a family gathering, it's over 30 people. All the kids would play together. They, they all got along. They all would run off and play while the adults visited and talked and stuff. And the kids always just went off and did their own thing. Nicholas grew up in a large, loving family. He was a typical two-year-old boy who was full of energy and love and excitement. His mother, Katie, brought him to see Santa that December in 1994 and they both bubbled with excitement as Christmas was drawing nearer. Katie was a loving mother who doted on her precious son, who, by all accounts, was a mama's boy. He was never happier or more relaxed than when he was by his mother's side, sharing in whatever activities they would find themselves doing each day. Nicholas was surrounded by love, not only from his mother, but from her large family. Katie grew up with six siblings. She was the fifth in the birth order. She had five sisters and a brother. Her brother wasn't too keen on being mothered by six older sisters. As the baby of the family, he was bossed around by his strong-willed older siblings. Nevertheless, they enjoyed each other's company, growing up in a house full of constant companionship and support. When Nicholas was born, It was instant love for this young mother, easily falling into motherhood without a backward glance. He 
Each day brought newfound joy as Katie watched little Nicholas find different ways to amaze her. By the time Nicholas was born, the extended family had blossomed into a bustle of activity. Becoming grandparents after raising seven wonderful children, having developed each one's distinct personalities while instilling a keen sense of family, these busy grandparents were bursting with pride at the arrival of each new grandbaby. The family was very close and would convene back at mom and dad's house regularly. They enjoyed celebrating every milestone, having large family gatherings. A simple birthday turned into an event. The adults would be chatting and catching up on family affairs and current events, while the bevy of cousins romped through the house and out into the yard. Kids, having nothing more to worry about than which snacks they would find or what game they would play next. You could hear shouts of laughter and squeals of delight as one chased another lovingly. Every now and then, an adult would pause from their conversation for a moment, watching their kids, their nieces and nephews, breathing a happy sigh, seeing the close bond their children were now sharing. Thankful, their sibling closeness was now passing on to the next generation. Enjoying their time with their family and knowing how lucky their children were to be growing up in this safe and warm environment. Loving that their children had such a large family and would enjoy almost daily contact with someone or another. Feeling blessed. Devastatingly, their idyllic and safe lives were about to be shattered forever. Not realizing how this picture of Santa with Nicholas, that Katie was so thrilled with, would be the last one that would ever be. This is the story of Nicholas Miller's murder. Tell me about the changes you saw in Nicholas's father after Katie and he broke up. No, Randy was really close with our family as well, but then he did change. He he left Katie to be with Debbie and like his whole attitude had just changed. Like he didn't want anything to do with anybody. And really he didn't get Nicholas when he was supposed to. Um, for visitations. For visitations and Nicholas would be waiting and waiting and waiting and Randy would never show up. And that would go for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he did get very nasty and vindictive with Katie. He, he started drinking a lot. It just it got really stressful. So then, what changes did you start to see in um, in Nicholas's behavior or or the relationship between you know he wasn't seeing his son as much, but he would go over from time to time. And and what sort of changes did you see in Nicholas? He was very whiny. He didn't want to go. She was hurting him. Debbie's soul was. She was hurting him before she murdered him. She wa- He would come home with scratches in his groined area, bruises. My sister would take him to the emergency room to have it documented. She had hit him so hard in the head by his ear that the bruise on his ear went all the way into the ear canal. She 
At one point, we did not know she had fractured his skull. CPS was called for two counties, Monroe County and Steuben County, to do an investigation on all this. It took them not even two weeks to decide that it was a safe environment for Nick to go back to, all because Nick would not tell them who was hurting him. He was telling his mother, Debbie Boo Boo, Debbie Boo Boo. But because he did not say it to the caseworkers, they deemed that it was okay for him to go back into that environment. And my sister tried to take legal actions. She tried speaking to her lawyer to see what she can do. And she was more or less told Randy was court-ordered visitations. And if she did not allow Nick to go, she could lose Nick. She could go to jail for not following a court order and she could lose Nick. So wanting to protect her child could put her in jail. I mean... The system is so disturbingly backward. It, it is, it, it's frightening. How did your family deal with that time? What, what, what were you guys thinking? And, and you must have been just devastated about what was happening, particularly your sister. Very angry. She, she, she did. She wanted to pack up and move. And to be honest, I even offered to give her money so her and Nick can run. Her biggest thing is that if she ever got caught, she would lose Nick forever. And she couldn't do that. Nicholas's father was close with Katie's family before he and Katie broke up. This open and loving family welcomed this man into their lives and into their homes. They saw him as a decent guy, never picturing him turning into the person he became or perhaps always was hiding it well during the time he was with the lovely Katie. When Katie shockingly began to see the signs of abuse that were apparent on her son, she knew she had to protect him. She followed the law. She did what she was supposed to, and she and Nicholas were failed. When Nicholas's father would bring him home, Katie would see things that as a mother, she would not ignore. Being devoted to her son and not hiding her head in the sand, she would bring him to the doctor or to the hospital to have Nicholas examined after seeing and hearing what her son was telling her, knowing it to be true, checking to see that if he was okay documenting his many marks and bruises, his injuries. Katie did everything she was supposed to do to ensure the safety of her child, the love of her life. As his mother, all she wanted was to keep him safe and secure, to be loved and to be happy. But instead, she was desperately let down by those that are there sanctioned with the responsibility to protect the innocent. Those that are supposed to be there to shield us from evil. Katie did everything right. She did everything she could. And in the end, Everything she did was for naught. The judges and Child Protective Services, the people who were trained to defend her child, did nothing to help. Instead, they sent a two-year-old back to his death because he couldn't say the name of the person who was abusing him to a stranger, to a Child Protective Service worker.
This wee little baby couldn't breathe the name of the vile woman who was inflicting pain and suffering on him. Telling his mother was not enough. Nicholas courageously spoke out against his abuser and was pleading for help and protection. His cries weren't being heard by the only people that could help him. Being told Katie would go to jail if she didn't abide by their appallingly, frightfully wrong decision. Katie had no choice but to allow her son to go back to that place that she was so desperately fighting to keep him from. Katie knew that being in jail wouldn't do her son any good. So she continued to fight for her son while dreading every second her mama's boy wasn't with her. He would cringe and yeah, cry. And my sister was was she was she was being a mother and she was trying so hard to protect her son. And the time frame of all this happening, it was it was only it not even three to four months. Tell me about the the tragic and horrible moment that you had heard that Nicholas had been killed. Oh, give me a second. Absolutely. Take all the time you need. When Nick was brought home to my sister that morning, the father, the father had to have known what Deb had done. We blame him too. Um, other than she was only told that he was running a fever and throwing up. My sister had called the doctors thinking it's just the flu or a bug. She did what the doctor told her to do, Tylenol, baths, and then it was probably evening. She called me. She called me at like, had have been between 4 and 5 o'clock and had said, Patty, Nicholas's temperature is up to 105. What do I do? And she was panicking. And I said, you get him down to the emergency room now. And so she hung up. We didn't even say goodbye. She hung up the phone. And then it had been a couple hours later. I got the phone call. My husband answered the phone. And it was my dad. Because I heard my husband say, hey, Mike. And then I hear my husband go, oh, no. You got to be effing kidding me. He's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then he hung up with my dad. And... He was like, we got to go, we got to go. And I was like, what's going on? He was like, Nicholas just died. We got to go down to the hospital now. So it was all a blur after that. And then my dad, because like I said, we're a big family. You, you, you make the phone calls to all your daughters. And uh, it just so happened, my husband and I, we were getting ready to go out with some friends when I got the phone call at our house, I answered the phone. It was my dad telling me that Nick had died. I dropped the phone and dropped to my knees. My husband picked up the phone, talked to my father. My husband picked me up off the floor, and uh, we happened to have our babysitter there and my children who saw my two boys saw all this happen to their mom falling apart in front of them. He got me in the car, and on the way to the hospital, which was probably about a 15-minute drive, I just started screaming, I know she did it. I know she did it. I know she killed him. 
meaning Debbie Soul. And we took up the whole waiting room, the family, because like I said, we're a very big family. And uh, my sister, when I saw her, she was dead inside, numb, dead, just what he say. We all went in, his sisters holding hands to say our last goodbyes. And unfortunately, when he passed, that's when all the marks on his poor little body came out, all the bruises. So did you, Patty, as well feel that you thought this woman had killed your nephew as soon as you heard? Absolutely. Well, really, a lot of it was a, I don't know, it was a blur. Like Michelle said, we all, we all did go down and see him right after he had died. And it was something that's going to be forever in my brain because it was awful. He was just bruised from head to toe. And the doctors warned us that he wasn't going to look the same when we when we went in to say goodbye to him. I don't know. It was just, I think we all just kind of felt numb. I mean, it took her three days to confess, but we all just kind of, I don't know. We just were there for, we were there for Katie. We, somebody, she had to be comforted and we all, we were there to do our best to, to help her out. And, uh, just, she stayed at our parents' house for a while. Yeah. She stayed at mom and dad's for a while and we helped her with the funeral arrangements and helped her with the investigation because the police had to come into her apartment and take anything that they felt they needed to take, including the areas of like the carpet where Nicholas had thrown up on, they took it and clothes that he had, clothes that he had on, um, toys that he might've had. They thought Katie had did it. They thought Katie did it and they thought, um, she was to blame. They were down there. Katie, I don't know, she was in there for hours. Yeah, she was in there for hours. With the sheriff's office, the troopers, the troopers. Yeah. And he was in there for hours. Because then after the focus was off of Katie, it was on Randy, the father. Yeah, Debbie even called the hospital looking for Randy to see how he was doing. She wanted to talk to Randy. Bottom line is, if Debbie's soul had spoken up, and told us what she had done, Nicholas would probably still be alive today. He would have been able to have been saved. And the only reason why Debbie's soul got caught, because her six-year-old daughter at the time was in the same room with Nick when Debbie beat him and saw the whole thing. So her daughter is the one that turned her mother in. From what our understanding is, is Randy helped the police to get Debbie's soul to confess. After they had spoken to the daughter, they kind of put a wire on Randy. Randy met Debbie, and that's when she had confessed to Randy what she did, and she was rested right there on the spot. Did you go to the court hearings? What happened in that uh, way? She chose no no jurors, just the judge. And uh, it took five days for the trial. Um, It was mainly the coroners, the police officers talking. And then five days, and then it didn't even take the judge 
case. An hour? An hour to find her guilty. And all the while, she just sat in that room, no remorse, no emotion, never even said, I'm sorry, nothing. And we were told every time we went into court not to even look at her cross-eyed, or we would, we would be kicked out. The biggest part was for my sister when the coroner spoke up about the autopsy. She had left the courtroom, and I walked out with her. The rest of the family stayed in there. And how could any mother sit there? And her exact sentence was what in the end? 21 years to life. 21 years to life. Yes. Now, were you under the impression at that time that, you know, the sentence was 21 years to life, but she'd sort of be in for life? Or did you understand that that would not be the case? We kind of knew that would not be the case, but we figured we'd get to that bridge when we had to cross it, which we did when the parole hearing started. And, again, it's not fair to any victim. It's early. Yes. Her parole hearing started early because she was a model inmate. The inmates have more rights than the victims do. The inmates get more help than the victims do. So tell me a little bit about that. How how so, and, and how do you feel your family had been let down by not getting enough help? Uh, my sister, when it first when the first parole hearing happened, she Googled, she, she researched, she tried to figure out the best way to keep her in there. That's when the petitions all came about, letters from anybody that would listen, write letters, sign the petitions. And we were allowed to go with her to her hearing in front of the commissioners. We were allowed as a family to go and speak. And then I think it was 2019, the laws had changed and she she had no support when it was her time to go and talk to the commissioners, her own husband had to sit out in the car. Go in. No one was allowed to go in. Because he was just a stepdad. And my sister's daughter couldn't, wasn't even allowed to go because she was just Nicholas's half-sister. So originally at the parole hearings, you were all allowed to go, but then they changed it, yes. not allowing family to support your sister? Yes. And why? It, it, was a, it was a change in the law. And do you have any idea what, uh, what is the possible reasoning behind that? <laughs> no. No. The, it doesn't even we, make sense. Why would you possibly, like, I don't even understand who would have petitioned to have that law changed. It makes no sense to me. Why can't as many people as possible stand there before the committee and say, this is why this person shouldn't be out. This is why, you know, we all feel that. And everywhere, I mean, I, I, that, and flabbergasted that that law changed. That's crazy. Yes, we were too, because we would, 
we went, we would talk, we shared our letter with the commissioner that would sit there and answer any questions, any other questions that he had for us. We we did everything. Every two years. My sister had gotten the letter saying that she was the only one that was allowed to go. No one else was allowed in the building. You had to sit out in the car. When parole hearings began, two years earlier than they were supposed to, regardless that this woman had beaten a two-year-old to death, her apparent model inmate status afforded her this luxury? Originally, the family could go to be there for support, standing beside Katie, who was reliving her nightmare each time, but determined to fight to keep her son's killer in prison for life. Somehow, somewhere along the way, the law was changed and support for the victim was no longer considered essential. Once again, the system failing Katie. Who would have possibly petitioned to have this particular law changed? Certainly not victims' advocacy groups, nor victims themselves. She goes with a folder full of letters, God, videos that, you know, we make of Nick pictures and uh, gives her story every year. It's her reliving this all over again and again and again. It's her sitting there telling her story and fighting to keep this murderer behind bars. And then and she found out, gosh, just before Christmas. We went, her last one that she went to was in September of last year. That was the normal two-year parole hearing. Debbie was denied parole back last September. Katie had found out just before Christmas that they overturned it and due to a special circumstance, Debbie was entitled to another parole hearing. Katie had literally two weeks to get ready for it. Two weeks. That was it. We don't know what the special circumstance is yet. My sister has not gotten a copy of that yet to find out what had happened. So... So Katie, what? Spoke, Katie's spoken to the parole board again. Over the phone. Over the phone in January. And then Debbie went up in front of the parole board on February 4th. Katie didn't hear anything. Katie didn't hear anything. Katie didn't hear anything. Nobody could bother to call her. She got online to look, and it stated that she was being released on March 2nd. And she is out. out. Debbie's soul is out as of March 2nd. She's out. The biggest thing is Katie and helping her through all this. I mean, it's her whole world has just come crashing down again. Living, we feel like, and I know she does, that we failed Nick. She was released in Queens, New York. We do know that. My sister's not, I don't think my sister's allowed to know her address. How do, how do you like that one? Um, my sister can put 
special circumstances on her. But again, my sister Katie had to call her assigned parole officer. Nobody contacted her. And uh, she had to put more or less um, stay away orders on Deb to stay away from her family. And to stay away from children. Yes, she's trying, my sister Katie is trying so hard for her to have a stipulation put on her that she's not allowed to be around children. She had contacted the parole officer Monday. The parole officer did not have Deb's file in front of her yet, but Katie was allowed. She, she put her circumstances. And when she got to the circumstance of she wants it put in there that she is not able to be around other children, the parole officer said, well, I'll have to get back to you on that because I don't have her folder in front of me yet. She can go anywhere in New York, but can't leave this state. <laughs> it's, she can do whatever she wants. She can get a job. She, she, she has her life back. She still blames my sister Katie for everything. She has daughters. She has grandbabies. She blames my sister Katie for her not having a relationship with her daughters all these years. The woman who killed Nicholas blames his mother Katie for her incarceration. She takes absolutely no responsibility for what she did. None at all. As a matter of fact, all past transcripts from the parole hearings show she has not shown any remorse, has never taken any responsibility. As it happens, she always states that she blames Katie for the lack of relationship she has with her children and grandchildren, never even hinting at the facts, never even a whisper of the reason for her lack of freedom over the past two decades, that she is a child killer. Right now, I just, the only advice that I can give my poor sister, I, I mean, you, you don't have words. Well, what do you say? Other than, you know, I just tell her she just one day at a time. That's all she can do. One day at a time. I mean, she, she feels defeated. So as sisters, you know, we, we we're picking it up for her. We're getting the word out about Debbie's soul and that she's out in the public now and that she is a child murderer. My sister is focusing on a registry for murderers like they do for sex offenders. Um, she came across this group. It's called um, Brittany's Law. And it's a group of people that have been trying and are pushing for a registry to be made for any murderer, be it domestic violence, be it, uh, you know, child murder, whatever. So people know that you have a murderer living in your neighborhood. My sister just happened to come across them because that's what she was saying that she wanted to do. You know, you, you try to figure out what the next step is. And she, she said that there's, there's nothing out there for any murderer that's being released. You don't even know where they're being released at. 
So it just, I think by the um, grace of God, she came across this Facebook page. Katie is a very strong woman who continues to fight for change even now. After being let down time and time again by a system that was put in place to protect us, serve us in our times of need, help to ensure dangerous individuals stay off the street, treat victims' families with the respect they deserve, protect children, keep families informed of changes in the status of the criminals that forever affected them in such a way that is incomprehensible and irreversibly damaging. Nevertheless, Katie has made the choice to fight every day and now she wants to fight for other people. It, we have always been kind of like keep to ourselves type family and to sit here and put our feelings out there and put our experience out there and reliving it. It's a little bit out of our comfort zone. Right. But we are doing what we need to and have to do to get the word out about Debbie's soul, about murderers and, uh, I, the next phase in our world is hoping that this law gets passed and move forward with that. And, get the word out about it. We do know that when Debbie Soul, since she's been in jail, he has written her letters. Love letters. Love letters. You must have been shocked when you found that out. Oh, yeah. It, it, I don't think my sister was too shocked, to be honest, when she found it out. <laughs> oh, really? It didn't surprise her. She had always felt that, I don't think Nicholas's death affected Randy as a father the way it should have because I do and my sister always my sister Katie always said it he had guilty a guilty conscience mm. and I think to this day he still has a guilty conscience because he knew what had happened and didn't do anything either to help his son Nicholas's father was never charged with anything and moved away running leaving devastation in his wake, failing his son, miserably, fatally. To hear that he continued a relationship of sorts with the woman that murdered his son, writing love letters to her, makes you wonder how he escaped with the privilege of freedom from prosecution. Well, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, you, t you guys take care. You have you a too. good one. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I'd like to thank everyone for being here this week. I have been getting such amazing feedback from the families that tell their stories here. This is all thanks to you, our listeners. I greatly appreciate your support and dedication to Mourning the Murdered. While producing the podcast, I need many tools to be able to bring you quality content each week. I now have an affiliate link with Amazon. And by simply clicking on the link before you make your Amazon purchases, you are helping to support my podcast. Once you click on the link, you will be redirected to your Amazon page, ordering as you normally would. There are no extra costs and no fees. 
just go to my website, morningthemurderedpodcast.com and click on the affiliate link. You can also, as always, support the podcast by sending a one-time PayPal contribution or through Patreon, you can donate as little as $1 a month. All of the links can be found on morningthemurderedpodcast.com. So your help is only one click away. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.